Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today, we've got with us Jessica Marie Johnson, who's an assistant professor at John Hopkins University. She's a historian specializing in Atlantic slavery and the Atlantic diaspora. She also has a new book out called Wicked Flesh, Black Women in the Atlantic World, which is out late in August, but you can get it now from the press. I do need to tell you all, it's a fantastic book. I've read it. So I highly recommend you all go out and buy a copy literally right now. And this is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So hello, Jessica. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I am doing good. I'm doing good. We're here to talk about this absolutely incredible book. Um, first of all, I really want to know what actually made you want to write such a book? Uh, thank you. Well, first, thank you for having me. And thanks for this conversation. Um, it's exciting when people want to chat about things that I've been um, obsessing over for so long. <laughs> um, I really um, first encountered um, this topic, um, thinking about um, African women and women of African descent in the Atlantic world um, through New Orleans. So when I think about the book, when I think about when I was thinking about trying to write the book and who it was for, I was um, writing in a lot of ways a, a Black feminist history of the founding of, of uh, New Orleans. Um, I wanted to think about the ways that in a place, a region, New Orleans, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, um, that is, um, has so many different African diasporic flows flow through it, that has experienced so much in regards to slavery, empire, multiple colonialisms, um, later on uh, civil war, segregation, Jim Crow, how in the midst of all of that, you have spaces like New Orleans that are extremely vibrant, that are full of rich, dynamic, um, black visual culture, black popular culture, that are also spaces where it is strikingly clear the ways that um, black women have helped to sustain uh, the vibrancy of life in the midst of very hard times. Um, and often people, um, particularly when thinking about New Orleans, think of things like Mardi Gras or Second Lines or, um, you know, Treme, especially in the kind of post-Katrina moment of um, the, the rush to kind of explore New Orleans popular culture. Um, but these roots of, um, of, of Black freedom practices are so much deeper and so much longer than um, just post-Katrina, than just post-Civil War. Um, and I found them um, in the period of slavery um, and in the ways that African women who, who arrived on these shores 
found ways to make um, safety, security, autonomy for themselves in the most dire of circumstances. So the deeper I got into uh, that archive, the more I became fascinated with the ways that um, African women are using strategies, a whole range of kinship strategies to uh, create spaces for themselves and for their family. Um, they're using a whole range of intimate strategies uh, and experiencing also violence out of kinship and out of intimacy. Um, and in, in all of that, uh, creating, you know, an enclave, um, multiple enclaves um, that were um, both stable in their own way, like that could sustain them, but also had to be malleable, had to be changeable, had to be um, uh, uh, um, manageable, um, responsive to a whole range of time. So I was just fascinated by all the ways things change um, over time, the responsiveness of Black women in these spaces and um, and began to try and trace that. And this tracing in particular led me to Senegal and the women who helped create the coastal Senegal societies of Saint-Louis and Coe. Um, but that is just one um, arm of this diaspora. Um, they could easily have written a whole separate book about the Bight of Benin, a whole separate book about Congo Angola and the same influences and still ended up at New Orleans. So um, hopefully this is just the first foray in, in broader study on this topic. Can I just say, um, I was one of these people that when you say New Orleans, I'm like, oh, Mardi Gras. And then <laughs> you sent the book over and I read it and I kind of thought, wow, this is a whole, something completely different. And it's incredible. And reading about what these women did and how, how smart some of these, I mean, we're going to talk about some of these women. They were so smart and, and in survival. And it's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, they are, um, they are crafty and clever in ways that I um, cannot imagine. And it's interesting because I am often asked, you know, how are you able to study, you know, this topic, like slavery is so dark and it's, it's, it's it, it intensely violent. Um, it's intensely personal in its violence because that is the way that um, slaveholding institutions and societies recreated themselves through the reproduction of intimate violence. And, um, and so how are you able to sit in this archive? And the reality is like, I'm fascinated by these women. You know, they're um, inspiring, they're, um, they're smart, they're creative, their creativity knows truly no bounds and they're complicated and um, and messy and there's ways that the things that they embark on don't always succeed and that too I think is a really important part of um, Part of the story that that they have to tell us at least that they have to pass down Okay, so let's start let's go back a little bit and talk to our listeners about the, the journey. So could you give us an overview? Um, the, the slaves journey. What did it look like for them? What were the horrific conditions that they had to endure and Where would they embark from and where did they go? So um, in general, the kind of arc of um, slave slaving um, that I follow is one that um, was inspired, uh, that I found inspiration from in Michael Gomez's work in thinking about how do we trace um, the full journey of enslaved people across the Atlantic into the diaspora. And so I start with um, the point of initial capture, which is generally for um, most Africans in the 18th century, somewhere far interior to the coast. Um, so for enslaved people who are ending up at um, Saint-Louis-Agre, um, who are um, embarking on these um, French 
ships that are heading to Louisiana and other parts of the French Atlantic, often they're starting um, deep in um, the Futajalone Highlands, um, deep in the savannah, deep in the forests. Um, and those are the result of either um, uh, sometimes kidnapping, sometimes internal slave trades of, of pawn ship and um, other kinds of um, smaller exchanges, but often larger um, succession and um, wars between different polities. Um, so the rise and fall of different um, kingdoms and regimes uh, will lead to uh, both the, the capture of prisoners and communities and individuals as a result of you know, military incursions, and also folks who are being sold as prisoners of war, folks who are being sold um, as, uh, as enemy combatants. Um, and so in this world, um, people are being captured and they're ending up um, at places like um, like Gajaga, which is um, further up the Senegal River. Um, this is the furthest that Europeans tended to be allowed to go, particularly the French. Um, at this point is where um, Wolof emissaries would um, meet with North African um, traders. And so you would have a kind of intersection of um, uh, sub-Saharan um, slave trades and um, North African slave trades. Uh, and the French would um, collect their um, their prisoners, their um, enslaved cargo, and head back down the river, um, back towards um, San Luis. Um, Goree at this time tended to be less as sort of a trade entrepot and more of a kind of um, holding space, uh, refueling space for water and goods. Um, so you would have maybe less uh, less. Uh, collection from the, the, the interior heading over to the slave port of Goree. A lot of it ended up the, um, following the Senegal River um, from Gajaga back down to, uh, to San Louis. And from there, um, enslaved people uh, would be held at um, the fort or held amongst different houses um, on, the, on the island uh, and wait for ships to come and uh, and collect them. And so for this, um, so that could take some time, like that could take months for ships to arrive, depending on whether um, Europe, in this case, the French, um, but European ships are heading to ports where um, they uh, feel like they are going to be able to trade comfortably, where they feel like um, the African polities that are managing those ports. In this case, you have the different Wolof nations, Kajo, um, um, Walo, and, and Bewol. Um, you have, um, sometimes you have different tensions that are happening between the governors, the European governors of various forts, and the African polities on the, on the interior. Uh, and so, you know, a ship may not arrive at a place like San Luis for months, or there may be three ships at port ready to um, uh, secure um, enslaved people um, into ship to the Americas. Uh, so as soon as ships arrive at a place like San Luis, uh, they are um, loaded um, as much as they can be with enslaved people, men, women, and children. Um, they, you know, may stick around to have as, you know, quote unquote, large a cargo as possible. Um, this is what um, uh, Shawande Mustakim, who works on um, slave trades, calls uh, the uh, the warehousing period, um, where enslaved people are being 
um, basically kind of brought in almost like goods in a warehouse. Like how much can you fill the warehouse and then how much can you distribute the goods out for economic benefit of everybody involved, um, except the enslaved people themselves. Uh, and then the ship would embark. Um, ships that left the coast at San Luis Aguirre usually is a route of a couple of months across the Atlantic. And normally they had to stop somewhere. So you normally only have enough supplies to make it all the way to maybe someplace like Grenada, which is where the ships that were landing at Louisiana often stopped for refueling. Um, they might have landed at um, somewhere like Saint-Domingue, um, which is a harder landing point because Saint-Domingue's um, slave owners tended to have um, more capital and more specie to purchase slaves. So if the enslaved people were going to make it to Louisiana, if the captain was gonna make it to Louisiana in the first place, um, stopping at Saint-Domingue would be a huge temptation to sell off the cargo. Um, so uh, encouragement was to either stop at Grenada and then after a certain point not to stop at all. So company officials in France encouraged ships to just kind of avoid refueling because at the refueling point, um, enterprising lieutenant governors and, and governors and, and slave owning, wealthy slave owners um, would try and trade their you know, sick or their rebellious enslaved people for fresh, quote unquote, fresh cargo. Um, and that of course is you know, a, uh, a stress for the ship captain, it's a stress for the trading company, um, it's a stress for the enslaved people who are being traded. Um, and so these, uh, um, I call them exchange slaves in the book, um, these exchange slaves would, that's a part of the, the trading process. So it's this long, long, long passage um, where after you have this refueling point, then you end up um, at where uh, Africans uh, disembark from the ship uh, and find themselves in these slaveholding societies under completely new rules and completely new worlds that they have to manage. So that in this case means Louisiana, but you know, a similar process of capture, the Baracun, which is the, the, um, the holding, the warehousing stage at some places like San Luis and Gore, the, the actual crossing, a refueling point, and then a landing um, somewhere in the Atlantic, um, on the Atlantic side of things. Uh, it's pretty common for most, um, most Africans crossing the Atlantic at this point. One of the things I argue in the book, and this will be the last thing I say, and I'm speaking a lot. <laughs> One of the things no, I argue no, in no. the book. <laughs> don't worry, our listeners, are, they don't want to be listening to me right now. They want to be listening to you, so don't worry about it. Um, one of the things I argue in the book is that actually I, I try and extend um, Gomez's um, articulation of, of the slave trade um, to go deeper into the interior of the places where they land. So if we think of the, um, the stress, the terror, and the permutations of, of war, of kidnapping, of pawnship, of trafficking that happens in the interior of the African um, coast, or beyond the African coast in the interior, then one of the things we're also trying to think about is like, does that actually end on landing? And often in places, um, uh, particularly in, in North American context, uh, that did not. And so in the moment that Africans are landing in Louisiana, they're also, their journey doesn't sort of end at, at the coast, at, at Mobile or at New Orleans. It actually continues as they go up into um, what is Natchez territory um, and end up at an area around what is present day Natchez, um, which is um, then called the White Earth or White Apple. Um, and, uh, and their journey continues as they are sort of um, caught between both Natchez and um, indigenous 
communities and polities that are also trying to figure out what is this thing called the French? What is this thing called slavery? What are these things called plantations? And, and what are we going to do about them? And the French themselves who are trying to figure out alliances with indigenous uh, polities who are trying to establish plantations of their own. So also you know, still having incursions of land on, on land that is not theirs um, and also trying to manage slavery. So in the midst of this, um, African women, children and men are still caught in these kind of geopolitical battles. Um, and I see that, uh, one of the things I argue is that that is, that is the long middle passage, that is that long journey um, from geopolitical battles on the African coast, on the African um, continent, to the coast, and then geopolitical battles in the Americas. Do you know, I think we should switch to the women. I really want to know, well, I know, <laughs> I know more. No, no, I know, I, I know, because I've read the book, but I want our listeners to know more about these women. Um, so you wrote a bit about women who were owned by the trading companies. So what were their lives like? So um, the women, uh, there are um, at places like San Luis Angore, and this is, this is actually fairly common across the different coastal towns. Um, you had two sort of categories of enslaved women. You had African women who were enslaved to the inhabitants of the town. Um, the women who were free African women, or what we would describe as free. Free is a kind of strange word when we apply it to African context. Um, people who would describe as free African women who um, owned uh, uh, homes, who owned um, uh, cattle of their own, um, who uh, own means of fishing, who own their own things, and among the things that they owned were enslaved women um, and enslaved, uh, often women, but sometimes they own enslaved men, enslaved children as well, of course. Uh, and so those um, enslaved women working at the comptoirs, um, they will be charged with the kind of work that um, is the drudgery work of managing and keeping running these uh, these uh, coastal societies. So they would be doing laundry, they would um, secure water, they would um, they, they, uh, be, uh, they would be pelices, which is um, the kind of grinders of millets, um, was a very common um, enslaved women's uh, role. Uh, they would be servants, um, they would be domestics. And so they would do all of that. They would be hired out to um, you know, other European men, company officials, soldiers. Um, soldiers uh, um, might hire, um, an enslaved woman might be hired out to a soldier, um, or it might be a, a, a free woman, a domestic. So it, it was kind of fuzzy, that line, um, to do uh, all these things for them personally um, and to you know, keep things clean, um, to manage their own households. Um, and in fact, it came to be a thing that they um, both expected and demanded that they would, um, even though the governors would try and manage this and, and try and expel the women from the islands, um, the soldiers would revolt and say, no, like, we don't want to do our own laundry. Like, that's not, that's not what we've signed up for. Um, and so they would, <laughs> and so they would, uh, you know, like, they would push back. Um, and so there are, like, these roles that um, enslaved women of the habitants, of the inhabitants of the islands um, would play, of the coast would play. Uh, and then there's also the enslaved women who came on, on, the, uh, on the trade route um, from the interior who were, um, captives who were meant to be sent across the Atlantic. And they had a very much more truncated sort of experience and exposure. They wouldn't be hired out. Um, they wouldn't, um, they were meant to be 
um, sort of uh, imprisoned um, where they couldn't escape, they couldn't revolt, they couldn't um, cause trouble. That, um, uh, and uh, they would await uh, ships to uh, arrive and transport them um, across the Atlantic. Now, this gets fuzzy at different times and places. I mean, when you get into like the details of when, you know, these long breaks between ships coming, you know, what are these women then doing? At those points then, um, you know, servants would be utilized, labor gets utilized where labor needs to be used. Then um, you also have these other points where um, there are these um, drought periods where um, famine begins to hit even along the Comtois who are sort of relying on the interior for grain and for water for, um, for their own subsistence. Uh, and so then you have also those points where, you know, there is, um, it's a struggle for, um, for everyone. And now like even the enslaved people who maybe are supposed to be kept under guard and under watch are then sort of you know, dispersed to do other kinds of labor um, and engage in other kinds of activities. So um, it's truly a, a society with slaves. I'm thinking of like Ira Berlin's formulation of society with slaves and slave societies along these coastal areas. Uh, but when it comes to um, getting on the ship, this becomes a key distinction because there are actual um, rules that get passed, that the company begins to pass, um, protecting those um, enslaved to the habitants, to those who are living on the at the comptoirs, African or otherwise, from being sent on the ships. Now, not foolproof because it often happened that actually mistakes would happen or somebody would be slipped onto a ship or sold to a, a ship captain who actually belonged to somebody who lived at the different comptoirs. Uh, but uh, in theory, if you were enslaved to Abitant, you were protected from sail across the Atlantic. And if you would come down the, um, the river on the trade, um, then you were meant to be at some point sold across the Atlantic um, to the French colonies. So where does mariage à la mode de pay fit into all of this? Yes, so mariage à la mode de pay is... Um, is a complicated institution um, that fits in um, as one of these um, kind of bridge institutions that um, African women along the coast um, utilized and were utilized for um, creating alliances between um, polity, African polities and Europeans who were visiting. So mariage de la Modupe in its most basic um, form um, is marriage in the manner of the country and is the like literal English translation. Um, and it was, it, we see it as early as um, the 1670s or 80s between Portuguese and Dutch European men um, and um, uh, African women on the coast. Um, it uh, combined Wolof um, or Libu um, marriage customs um, with Catholic customs. Um, so it was not official Catholic marriage because the Catholic Church, of course, would not recognize that. Um, but sometimes it would be officiated by a priest. Uh, it often um, included some exchange of, 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 of bride wealth, so the, the um, European suitor. Um, would go to the woman's family um, and um, express his interests. Um, and then there would be an exchange of gifts um, on either side. Uh, and uh, the woman may or may not um, have taken uh, the European name. Often it seems, particularly as you get later into 18th century, that the women did take the European surname, but not always. 
Um, often uh, the actual ceremony is accompanied by uh, wolof or lebu, like marriage customs. So it would include a ball, a, a feast, um, uh, lots of celebration and dancing, um, food in the manner of the, uh, in, in, like in the manner of the country. Um, and it was recognized, even though it wasn't um, official Catholic marriage, it was still very much recognized along the coast, both by the couple themselves um, and the families of the couple or the, the woman's family um, and, uh, and by trading company officials. Uh, and there is, in fact, a lot of consternation um, among the governors and in their, in their letters about, you know, what do we do about these women who say that they were the spouses of these European men uh, and now demand inheritance, now demand, um, you know, certain customary rights, they demand property on the, at the comptoirs, like, what are we supposed to do with that? Because um, Europeans, one, of the, one good thing, way to remember this and think of this in context is that Europeans are not in kind of like political hegemonic control here. They have some, some measure of control over the Comtois space itself, like the literal island space. But they are beholden to, trade-wise, policy-wise, social-wise, um, the um, African kingdoms that they're paying duties and, and dues to, who literally supply them with water, who literally supply them with, with subsistence items. And so it is a very bad idea if you are marrying the women of this community to then say that these women don't have the customary rights um, and, and inheritances um, that they have um, that they that they have claimed um, through these marriages, uh, and on the other side, for the women, European men did not last long on the coast. <laughs> the Senegal records are full of um, death notices of uh, oh, wow. European men. Yeah, a lot of it's it's mostly um, in the in the Etastivil, It's mostly death notices of European men who die of, of very reasonable things like drownings, like um, various kinds of violence, um, but often of sickness. Uh, and so uh, the it was not uncommon for women to be widows and to be widows multiple times over, um, and to be able to acquire property um, and goods and security in that fashion. Um, and yet it gets also complicated. Um, the polities that are uh, most present on the coast, the Wolof in particular, are not matriarchal polities. Uh, women have a kind of space and capacity within the society, particularly as mothers and, and, and sisters of, of uh, different kind of aristocrats and officials. But for the most part, like it's still men who are able to um, set the ground rules of who is marrying who, what the different alliances are. So for the women, some of these alliances are not necessarily um, um, uh, by their choice, but over time they become a cadre uh, within the San Luis Gore, within this coastal schema that, you know, are almost ungoverned and ungovernable. They become their own entity. Uh, and that, I think, becomes really, um, becomes really, really complicated. Uh, in the San Luis Senegal context, um, they talk about the descendants of these women as señars, um, so a combination of señora, um, uh, sort of like a, 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 a combination of señora as a, as a, as a honorific. Um, mm. uh, that the, those women who um, survived, who acquired property, acquired significant amounts of property, often including enslaved people, 
um, that the that they were um, the seniors and that they um, and they they had a kind of status within these societies um, that you even see today um, as part of um, San Luis, uh, particularly San Luis society. Um, in this earlier period, this is where the beginning of where you begin to see how these women become their own block and their own demographic, like these very initial mariage modupe alliances and intimacies that they then transform into um, their own kind of uh, their own kind of political block. I guess is a good way to think of it. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So then in the 17th century, let me get the century right, first of all, <laughs> 17th century, the French decide to bring in the Code Noir, or um, translated into English, the Black Code. Can you tell us what that was all about? Because it had so many different stages, didn't it? It did. Um, and I was myself really surprised when I got into um, researching the Code Noir. And there's much more to say about it than I could possibly have said in the book. I actually um, had to cut out a lot of what I wanted to say about the Code Noir. Um, but the Code Noir is a complicated document. So it's um, issued in 1685, but its creation is actually a kind of like composite um, process uh, where um, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who is, you know, who's the eventual like kind of architect of the actual 1685 Code Noir, whose statue I think is now arguably coming down in France. I can't, um, I don't know if it's down yet, but I hear it's coming down or something. Um, as part of um, the kind of general drive to bring some order to what's happening overseas um, in the French colonies, because there was an idea um, from in the in the French uh, metropole side um, that it's just chaos over there. You have you know, there, it's 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 buccaneers and it's piracy and 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 um, these you know colonials are just. Um, fighting with each other and they're fighting with, with, with Spanish settlers and, and whoever else. Like it's, there's a sense that something needs to be done to bring these things into order and something needs to be done in order to bring these things into some kind of um, economic profit, particularly for the crown. And so Colbert, who's seen as one of the kind of architects of mercantilism, this is one of his aims. He, has many, he does many things. This is one of his aims is to bring things together um, by managing um, slavery. Uh, and so he asks 
in the governor and the intendant um, of the Antilles, um, Governor um, Charles de la Roche Coban de Blenac, um, and the intendant Jean Baptiste Patelet, to you know draw up some best practices and some considerations and some um, some recommendations for a overall code over all of the French Antilles that will manage um, slavery, that will manage management of slaves, that will manage slave owners' behavior towards um, those who are enslaved, uh, that will manage punishments, you know, subsistence, everything. Uh, and there's some back and forth about that. Um, what I focus on in the book is the back and forth over manumission, uh, because it's actually from the, you know, first entrance of Africans to um, to Martinique, to Guadeloupe, to Saint-Domingue, it's actually not clear that there will be what we call now part of sequitur ventrum, where slavery follows the womb. At first, you know, different um, governors and different officials have different ways of, of managing it. They, some um, decide that, you know, if you have a child with a negress, the child will be free at 25. Um, some are acknowledging and sometimes frustrated that slave owners are freeing the women that they're having um, intimate um, partnerships with or children with. And, you know, like, and that this is like, uh, um, this is, this is part of the negresses wickedness, um, which is part of where you know some of the thinking of the of the title of the book comes from. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of different practices actually in relation to manumission, and a lot of those practices are related to what French men um, uh, are doing with and or to African women. Uh, when that comes together in Colbert's hands, it ends up being and leaning uh, being. Um, part of sequitur ventrum. Um, the ambiguity of those first decades of the um, 17, uh, uh, last decades of the 17th century are sort of, um, are sort of disappeared um, in favor of a kind of more hard line that, again, has very economic um, implication, economic reasons for. If you have part of sequitur ventrum, you have a um, ready supply of enslaved people. Um, and then you don't have to worry about manumission. You don't have to worry about people um, through whatever intimate partnerships um, being offered freedom. And you are also able to police your European um, settlers and your Europeans who are um, having various relations overseas. So it's a many, it's like a multi-hit that is tinged on controlling um, reproduction um, and controlling intimate practices. Um, and it just happens also, uh, like, you know, friendly fire also just happens to hit um, the French who are in the colonies. But the end result is a kind of perpetual slavery and a code that um, is also the first uh, imperial code, I believe John Garrigus makes this statement, the first imperial code to apply, um, to manage slavery that applies to the West Indies. Um, so I know many people often refer to Siete Partidas, which is the Spanish's, um, with Spanish code um, that manages slavery um, and derives in a lot of ways from Christian Arabic um, conflicts um, in Iberia and in North Africa. Um, but this is the first one issued by a European power meant to manage its, um, its overseas colonies. Now, the trick to this is that the 1685 Code Noir specifically is for the West Indies. It is not applied to the African coast. And I found this very interesting, considering that there is slavery at, at the Comtois, that, that this is like 
um, you know, one of the conversations that is happening with the governors, but it's not applied there. Um, and one of the things I argue in the book is that they couldn't have applied it there, um, even if they wanted to. Um, that again, given um, the social relations and political relations along the coast, they don't, um, Europeans don't have the kind of control um, that they will have in the 19th century. Um, they don't, they aren't able to um, enforce a code like that, much less um, apply it and, and make it stick. And even having it actually might cause more friction with polities that they need um, to have friendly relations with to trade and to subsist um, than, um, than not having it. So let's go back to bit, something a bit more domestic. African slaves were hired out to other households. What would happen to these women? So, yes. <laughs> so as um, women are hired out between households, um, all the things that, you know, we imagine um, happen on uh, the American side of the coast are still still apply on the um, on, along the African coast as well. Um, slavery is different in um, in an African context. Um, people have you know discussed this for many many years now. Myers and Kapitov, Columbia Sue, um, Joe Miller also has talked about different ways that slavery and slaving you know shift as they move over time and over space. Um, but one thing that has uh, often sometimes I think gets missed in that conversation is that for enslaved women, um, the heart of slavery remains, um, let me rephrase it. One of the ways to actually reveal the heart of what bondage is, is to look at it from the perspective of enslaved women. Um, is to look at, it, look at it from the perspective of the ways that intimate and kinship violence of slavery is actually at the heart of bondage. And so as women are working in households or moving between households, they are also doing all of the, experiencing all of the same violences that um, they experience on the other side of the Atlantic. They're, you know, struggling to, you know, connect with their kin. Um, they're unable to take care of their kin in favor of having to take care of another household's um, kin. They are experiencing intimate violence, um, which you see in some of the baptismal records of enslaved women who are um, having children by people that they are, you know, working for. Um, and they're um, experiencing the kind of grueling labor that is the, the, the hard, hard, hard labor of managing a household in this era. Um, one of the reasons that um, free African women have enslaved women is so that they don't have to do this drudgery work of getting the water and laundering and um, cleaning and all these other kinds of things. And they are also um, you know, not susceptible to the kinds of exposure that enslaved women are, um, are exposed to, like having to be the intermediary between strangers, um, having to um, be uh, both uh, in engaging in the labor of hospitality of you know, these traders who are coming through, European and African, um, and also subject to um, the uh, demands um, sexual and otherwise of of these same um, these same travelers, uh, and so um, what was striking to me are the ways that you know these are kind of um, not basic but like uh, fundamental violences that attend to 
bondage and the work of service that carries across the experiences of enslaved women on, on either side of the Atlantic. Didn't enslaved women face other forms of violence as well? Enslaved women faced a whole range of violence. Um, so they um, might experience intimate violence from people who are traveling. And there are some instances in the book where I talk about um, soldier um, who, um, uh, um, a soldier who rapes um, one of the uh, one of the slaves of one of the um, one of the uh, spouses of um, another uh, company official, um, and he's punished for it. Um, so that is one of the differences of um, slavery on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, they also might experience some of the same. Uh, conflicts and upheavals that are happening um, in this, you know, in the in the political conflicts and 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 battles and skirmishes that are happening between Europeans and Africans, Africans and Africans along these coasts. Um, and so, if there is a slave revolt, enslaved women are on at the Comptoirs are going to experience also like the dangers of um, of revolt, of being caught in the middle, or you know even participating if they. Um, if they so choose. And so all the kinds of ways that these are societies that are um, difficult to live in, difficult to manage, um, fraught, um, they are the same for these women as well. And then on top of that, um, these are women who are also experienced other kinds of precarities and other kinds of vulnerabilities that are specific to their station. So women enslaved women would also be involved in other things. And you mentioned in your book about them being involved in the French milita military. How were they involved in that? One of the things that um, I found interesting on the, particularly in the Louisiana side, um, and we can move um, over there a little bit, uh, are the ways that uh, African women and women of African descent uh, secured some of the earliest ways they secured their freedom were through some intimate alliance with uh, someone in power. <laughs> uh, and so one of the things I talk about are the ways that uh, the wives of um, African men who are, you know, either doing some kind of labor, or some, some version of indenture or hiring themselves out um, to the trading companies, uh, are able to, you know, those men are able to leverage their time in order to, you know, basically sort of over time buy the freedom of their, you know, their wife or of another woman. Um, and so their uh, African women are related to military service in that capacity. Um, but they also, I mean, they're still laborers. Um, and I think one of the ways to kind of think about this are, you know, as... <laughs> French militiamen, soldiers, um, patrols, platoons are embarking often in, um, in the book, at least they're talking about the ways that the French are embarking on these campaigns against um, the Natchez in particular. As they're going on these campaigns, like they don't stop wanting domestics. <laughs> they don't start wanting to do their own laundry. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so what, what man really does. <laughs> right. I mean, so, <laughs> so the extent to which they are able to still employ enslaved women as cooks, as domestics, as laundresses, as people who will bring water. Um, the, uh, the hospital employs a lot of women um, for a lot of these same purposes. And hospital labor is particularly kind of bloody, grudgy, 
um, labor in which there are a lot of fluids is some of the worst work to be engaged in. Um, so, um, so you see women um, in these capacities as well as essentially doing a lot of the work that they might have done, but now um, particularly in like live campaigns on the front lines and thus also subject to either being killed and, and military skirmishes or being um, taken up um, as um, enslaved, um, uh, not prisoners of war, the word is, is booty that comes to mind, like, um, but, um, Treasure. Um, yes, something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we can use the word booty. Use. <laughs> we can use the word booty, I think, in this context. Um, so they're taking up as, up as that as well by both the Natchez and, and the French. And so they're, they're an interesting kind of um, demographic of, of war that we don't actually think about. Uh, there's a new book uh, by Tavolia Glimp called The Woman's Fight that actually talks a lot about the ways that um, freed women um, secure, you know, both escond from plantations during the Civil War and also secure their, their freedom. Um, but in part, they have to, you know, do that working in these contraband camps and working for, you know, the Union's war machine. And so, um, so I think there's ways to apply that in these other kinds of um, imperial and, and war contexts. Um, and I think that, that we can see enslaved women more if we start thinking of these battles between French and Spanish, French and whoever else, French and Natchez, French and Chickasaw, as also um, inhabited by, um, by Black women's bodies. So these freed African women, they weren't always completely free, were they? Yes, no, they weren't. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I want the book to challenge is, um, is the idea of freedom as this thing, as this horizon that upon you know, crossing it, like you've entered into some new state that's somehow beyond um, the world that slavery made. Um, one of the things I want to point out is exactly this, that if we think of freedom in this kind of static category that you can achieve, you can sign a document and now your whole life has changed, then for these women, no, they don't, they don't ever quite achieve freedom. Um, even as free people, uh, free women, they can be, um, they have different punishments that are applied to them. There are parts of the book where I talk about the kind of policing of their, of their dress, of their of their behavior, um, their still their intimate practices remain um, uh, regulated. Um, if they harbor you know, any enslaved people, they can be re-enslaved. So they and and there's a line in um, in the 1724 Code Noir, the Louisiana version of the 1685 Code Noir, that um, essentially remind anybody who is free, all the free. Um, the Walib, the free blacks, that they still owe all deference to their owners and they all owe all deference to um, any of the white people around them. And so this is not, this is not free. If the category of free is what white men can access, this is not freedom. Um, and it's not meant to be. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm hoping that the book challenges, that there's an idea of freedom that you can walk into and it will be a different world. What I also hope it challenges is that we can actually think of a different kind of freedom um, that these women were trying to think about um, in their challenges to their owners for freedom, in their challenges to... <clears throat> to heirs, um, to secure freedom that was granted to them and how they, um, in their behavior that had to be regulated, like having to regulate the kind of um, dress and 
um, extravagant um, femininity that some of these women um, exhibited that caused laws and ordinances to be, you know, constantly issued against them, um, that, that we can actually see vestiges of a different kind of world, of a world in which um, these women are telling us what freedom actually is and means, um, and in that challenge are pushing, constantly pushing the boundary of what freedom is going to be, um, pushing the French officials to make certain demands and make certain concessions, pushing their owners to make concessions, pushing their um, African and Black husbands to make concessions. Um, and that that's actually a, a more interesting conversation about freedom than the one that is you've signed a document and now you're in a whole new world and more true to the experience of the of the women here um, in the 18th century. You have one woman who appears pretty much throughout the whole book, but I don't want to obviously give the whole everything away at once. So could you tell us just a little bit about Marie Bode um, and about her fate? Because her story is so interesting and it's so, it's mind blowing really. Yes, yes. Um, Marie Boat is um, one of those figures that you find in the archive and you're just kind of shocked <laughs> that she existed. <laughs> um, Marie Boat is the wife of a French uh, soldier, a uh, gunsmith, um, at Saint-Louis. Um, she's the daughter um, of, a, of a French official. Um, she's a um, she's African. She's born at um, Joao, which is just south of Gore. Um and she is caught in a situation that um, leads to her husband being deported um, and ending up eventually in Louisiana, uh, and then her following him. And what I find um, Muddy Boat stuck out to me not only because she's in a unique. Um, position of being a free African woman across the Atlantic, of which there are a handful. Um, she is the one that um, that follows this particular chronology um, that um, offers a kind of way of thinking about Senegal and Louisiana in relation to each other. Um, but she also struck me by how much we are able to learn from her story in the archive what her story means for how um, African women appear in the archive and what we don't know. Um, and so we end up um, with a story of a woman who crosses the Atlantic for reasons that it's not clear are entirely her choice or if um, the circumstances were different, would she have crossed? And then who ends up on the other side of the Atlantic and experiences um, all the kind of um, arbitrary, uh, oppressions of slaveholding power trying to consolidate, consolidate itself, trying to figure out what do you do with a free African woman in a world of slaves. Um, and so her story um, is also one of the more harrowing slave ship stories. So she's a passenger on one of the more harrowing slave ships. So there's that experience as well. Um, and then there's ways that we also just don't end up knowing enough about her. Um, I am always asked what happens to her? Does she ever pop up again? As far as I know, she does not. I am also always looking for records that might be a glimmer of her presence. And in the book, I talk about a few of those glimmers that might be um, links to her and links back to um, you know, her kinship network in Senegal. Um, but she's also an example of 
she's a she's a little example of what is successful about free African women's navigating of kinship and intimacy in this period and what is not successful and what cannot fly once you cross a certain line um, into um, a world, the world of slavery that is being built in the 18th century in Louisiana context. So some of that is vague because, you know, read the book and it's really, really interesting story. <laughs> um, but I, what I really want to stress about Muddy Bold is that um, at all times what I try to do is center what her decisions were and acknowledge that they were complicated um, and acknowledge that, you know, there is no sort of simple hero, you know, this is what, you know, resistive story that Marie Bode can tell us. She actually tells us the more real story of what the experience of a human being is in this world and the kinds of complicated negotiations and um, affordances that you make in order to keep yourself and to keep your, um, your kin, your loved ones um, as safe as possible. Um, and so she is, hope that I do her justice. Um, and um, I hope that she appreciates the story that, of herself that is, um, that is told here. Before we finish, can you just remind our listeners exactly where they can buy your book? Yes, 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 yes. So Wicked Flesh is available now um, on Amazon, um, but you can also buy it at the University of Pennsylvania, <coughs> University of Pennsylvania Press website, um, where it will ship faster, actually, if you purchase it there. Um, on, my, um, on my Twitter account, if you're on Twitter, I try and keep the most recent discount code as my pinned tweet. Um, but yes, it is available for purchase now, and it will be out and released um, at the end of August. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely incredible. I really, truly do love that book. And it is such a complicated story, not so straightforward. So thank you for coming on and telling us just a little bit about that and giving us a taste of the book. So please, ladies and gentlemen, go out and grab yourself a coffee. Thank you so much for having me. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Miss Zelly Rainey Orr. Zelly is frankly amazing so she was born into segregation in mississippi she marched in the 60s and she has spent a lifetime working on african american history her story is so moving and she's going to be telling us all about someone we really should know more about his name is charlie scattergood and he was a white college student who decided that he couldn't sit back in the face of social injustice and he spent his life fighting against it so join us for that don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 